For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The 2018 elections are now in the books, so let's look ahead to 2020. <laughs> I'm kidding. We'll start talking Only that way bit. next week. Yeah, Only a little bit. <laughs> for for now, let's talk about the new governor-elect, Kevin Stitt, uh, easily defeated Democratic challenger Drew Edmondson. Neva, your thoughts on Stitt's win? Well, first of all, it was a, an incredible win. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think all of us uh, felt like going into the the final weekend that it was still a very close, very competitive race. Uh, obviously. Uh, Edmondson people did not let up till till the end. Had a very strong uh, ground game going. So to uh, uh, to win with uh, 54 percent uh, and to win all but four counties uh, was uh, was a real testament to uh, I think the message that uh, Kevin Stitt had and how the people of Oklahoma responded. They wanted the outsider. They wanted the businessman. They wanted the fresh ideas and the new approach. And so it really sets up. And I think what we saw with the governor elect the more morning after is uh, a little bit of what we're going to uh, uh, see in his new administration. Someone who's reaching across the aisle, uh, made a call to uh, Congresswoman-elect uh, uh, Kendra Horn, uh, to uh, other statewide officials, uh, met with uh, uh, the uh, Speaker of the House at the Capitol, and really kind of set the tone that he wanted all of the folks at the table. So I, I think it's very refreshing, and I was pleased uh, pleased to see what has happened since the, since the votes did come in. Ryan. Well, and it was a crushing defeat. Uh, I think that Neva's absolutely right. Walking into Election Day, uh, most folks, you know, looking at the 5th Congressional District and looking at that gubernatorial race, most folks looked at them as parallel you know they're tracking parallel that they're going to be very close races everybody was talking about turnout models um and at the end of the day you know, we saw you know strong performance for dredmanson in you know, at least two counties and he won four counties but you know oklahoma county in particular cleveland county in particular did really well i attribute this really more to and, and i looked a lot of these results at the county level yesterday and i attribute this a lot more to just partisan tribalism that we're at right now and less about messaging from either candidate and much more about the idea that Kevin Stitt was a Republican and in particular in the in the rural areas of the state it's it's virtually impossible at this point to see a path for a Democrat to win statewide and pick up those uh, those rural conservative Republican districts Republican counties Latimer County within the last month in Wilburton they watched their hospital close if it were about issues Drew Edmondson wants to expand Medicaid, open that hospital back up, keep other hospitals from closing. Kevin Stitt adamantly opposed to that. Latimer County, I think, went 57, 58% for Kevin Stitt. And I think that that was much more based on partisan uh, identity than anything else. But when you had a 50, 56% turnout, I mean, the, the largest turnout in the last nine gubernatorial elections, I think that says that the voters knew knew what was at stake, they knew who the candidates were, and they'd made up their mind. And I think we see that across the board, up and down the ticket. So uh, the the tribalism argument, I think, uh, really is not... it is not a strong one. And I think when you look at even the four counties, I mean, Drew Edmondson uh, only won Muskogee County by one vote. I mean, uh, it, it was not all about just partisan politics and straight party voting, although that clearly was a factor. But I think it was about the, the contrast between the insider and the outsider. And kudos to the, the actual voter turnout, which was 56 percent, which is amazing. Best voter turnout in midterms in maybe, yeah. what, eight elections, eight midterms? Eight yeah. Pack past 2000. So it's, it's so it's wonderful to see that. But I did also, Joe Dorman on Tuesday night mentioned that this was about the 
spread that he had gotten, which is about 50, 54% to about 41%. It's, it was basically almost the spread he got. So, I mean, how do Democrats beat that? Well, and I think that you have to figure, and I really do think that it really comes down to this idea of you know, folks turning out for their team. I think that the, the high turnout was you know you had in, in the metropolitan areas where folks were turning out and turning these precincts and, and in some instances these counties and these congressional districts blue, they were showing up in response to corruption. They were showing up in response to a, a lack of work on uh, health care, expansion of Medicaid. Um, but I think that that was wrapped up in partisan identity. And, and for, the, for the metropolitan urban areas, it's Democratic identity. And in the rural areas, what we've seen is that it's this Republican identity. You know, he won Muskogee County by one vote. That's his home, home county. And we'll talk some about yeah. state legislative seats earlier or later in the program. But we watched a state legislator, a leader in the legislator, legislature lose to somebody who probably didn't spend any money, but only had one attribute, and that was an R next to his name. That is true, but interestingly, when you when you think about it, it, we have a lot of Democrats that went to the polls without question on Tuesday and voted straight Republican. So, I mean, this idea that Democrats uh, just vote straight Democrat, Republicans vote straight Republican, and somehow that's the way the die is cast, I think when we begin to further analyze these results, we're going to see that there's a different picture. Democrats saw some good news on Tuesday's election with an upset victory in Congressional District 5 by Kendra Horn over incumbent Steve Russell. I know we were all surprised as, as Horn took the lead early Tuesday night and never let go. Ryan, were you surprised? Well, you know, I've, I've been saying that this was going to be the Congressional District that was going to f- flip first in Oklahoma for a very long time. I don't think any of us walking into the 2018 cycle thought that we would see it happen this year. Uh, maybe, Ken, you know, well, Kinder Horn did because she jumped in the race and she took it seriously for over a year. But everybody else, I know even myself, a good friend of Kendra's, was skeptical about whether or not that could actually happen. But, you know, this, this year, uh, I think what we saw was um, a candidate and a campaign that was just flawless. And, you know, there was a lot of talk at the very end about, you know, this huge independent expenditure ad that came in or independent expenditure ad buy that came in. But if you look, that's not what won this race for Kendra Horn. Early voting, absentee voting, she crushed it. And when she walked out of early voting and absentee voting, when those were first reported at the very beginning of the night, she walked in with a huge substantial lead that she never let go of. Russell closed it within a couple of hundred votes at a few points when some precincts were coming in, but she never lost that lead after those early votes. So what that tells me is that her organizing campaign and her message uh, and and her being able to be a, a fresh and uh, a fresh face that's going to go to Washington and do something, to, you know, create some check and balance uh, in our federal system. I think voters responded to that and they showed up in huge numbers. Right. Russell won the general election on the day of, he, if you look at the numbers, but, but he, couldn't, he couldn't cover what she'd already done in early in an absentee ballot. That's right. And I think, I think what you have is a couple of things. One, uh, Ryan is right. I mean, uh, Kendra Horn ran an incredibly smart competitive campaign from day one. I mean, to get into a race knowing you're 20 points plus down, uh, never never let that really impact you and really take on uh, almost the flavor of an, the incumbent to the extent that she did better fundraising, she did better organizing uh, her ground game, she had more competitive advertising. I mean, when, when at the time toward the end, uh, she was far outspending uh, on uh, the airwaves uh, 
against uh, Steve Russell, even though he had more money in the bank. So I, th- I think this was a case where uh, they, the, the, uh, uh, the Kendra Horn team viewed this as an opportunity. And, and, and Ryan is right. I mean, when you had Oklahoma County with the intense concentration, starting with the Edmondson folks and the Horn folks, and knowing that that could be uh, the, real, uh, the real key to a potential path to victory, because when you look at the other two counties in the 5th District race, I mean, Kendra Horn had uh, basically... Uh, she she bested Russell about 9,800 votes in Oklahoma County, but he bested her 65, almost 6,600 votes in uh, uh, Pottawatomie and Seminole, Seminole County. County. So yeah. again, you had the you had the differences there that that came into play, but. Uh, it was a it was a huge success. I mean, third woman in the history of our state uh, to to go to Congress, and uh, I think that uh, it will be uh, uh, it will be reflective in in the trends to come uh, in Oklahoma County as we see more and more of these races be competitive between Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, and, and well, and some exciting stuff for Oklahoma. Kinderhorn was ignored by the National Party here, the yeah. DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. They didn't give her any money. They didn't support her. They didn't they didn't swoop into the state. This was, you know, 538 on election night said this was the biggest upset in the nation. Uh, national folks did not have this on their radar. So she's going to go to Washington, D.C. as a pickup in one of the deepest red states in the country uh, that they didn't pay any attention to. She's got an enormous amount of leverage for a freshman lawmaker in, in Congress. And she goes to Congress understanding uh, understanding about Congress. I mean, she worked for Congressman Brad mm-hmm. Carson. Uh, she's an attorney by background. I mean, she's someone who uh, steps, to the, steps up uh, with a good resume and a good profile to be able on the Democratic side to become, I think, an instant player, like you say, Ryan, someone that nationally has to be looked has to be respected and part of a wave of females that were elected to Congress that uh, clearly are going to help um, message in a different way than I think we've seen in the past. And a blue wave because also she's going into a majority Congress. Into a majority Congress with, with a lot of leverage, with a lot of experience. And I know that there are already people talking about, well, can she hold on to this in 2020 in election year? But what we saw was, one, a remarkable candidate, a remarkable campaign, but we're seeing this realignment. And Steve Russell ran a second district Republican campaign in the fifth district of Oklahoma. You cannot do that and win as a Republican anymore. Just like guys like uh, Rob Wallace and other folks in the past ran, uh, they tried to out Republican folks over in the second district or in the, in the first. You can't do that. That's not the way the, the realignment has happened. Oklahoma County, even uh, the outliers in Seminole and Pottawatomie County, they're going to give Republicans some cushion there, assuming that they don't get redrawn in 2020. But they'll not ever give them enough cushion, I think, to overtake what and, and I can think build, in two years in with County. a presidential with a presidential year coming up, I think the test for Kendra Horn will be uh, building those bridges, uh, building relationships uh, in in the fifth district that uh, that allow for folks uh, to see that she can be a congresswoman who can represent the district uh, across the board. And when she does that, if she's successful at doing that, then I think it will position herself as an incumbent going into her first reelection in a much different way. Back to the Republican Party, which held on to every statewide office from lieutenant governor to corporation commission, Neva, every one of the GOP candidates received support. I was amazed by this from either 58 percent all the way up to 75 percent of support for for their for their candidates. Well, and and this was not a surprise at all because we had seen this in polling almost uh, from the from the outset. I mean, the, everyone expected that uh, the secondary office holders would would be Republican. I mean, we 
had uh, three Republican incumbents from re-election. We had the others uh, uh, maintained by Republicans. And I think uh, I think part of that was the strength of the candidates. Part of it was uh, the fact that almost without exception, the Democrat independent uh, candidates were underfunded. Uh, talk about uh, having no one pay attention to you or uh, uh, be interested in those races. I think, I think we saw that uh, as we always do in secondary races, but maybe even a little more pronounced this year. And Ryan. Well, and I think, again, on a lot of these races, they weren't on people's radar to the extent that they were on their radar. It was a very lopsided campaign. Um, you know, we see what, you know, some of the things to learn about this is, you know, what, what's the, the, the worst Democratic base that you can start off with? You know, if you're a Democrat and you're running for statewide office, I think coming out of this, you know, 33, 35 percent is what your what your generic uh, Democrat on a ballot in a statewide uh, race in Oklahoma can start off with. And you've got to build from there. And when we talk about the path to a victory for a Democrat running in a statewide office, there has to be something. There has to be some event or events uh, that that allow people to uh, feel like they can. A step away from their cognitive uh, shortcut that they use by saying, I'm going to vote for a Republican here because that's my team, um, and and uh, jump over to that Democrat. What those event or events are, I think, are going to, are going to be unique to each and in individual particular race. But I think just as a generic Democrat, the path for victory at a statewide uh, office level right now is very difficult to imagine. Is there a concern for the Republicans of being just, well, hey, no problem. I just put, a, you know, run as a Republican. If I make it past the primary, I can win this race. I, I think I think just like we saw Tuesday night, I mean, there are no absolute givens in politics. So anyone who presumes that uh, it's automatic, I think it's a bad presumptuous presumption. However, it certainly, as Ryan says, when you start with such an advantage, when you start with that huge advantage going in from day one, then all you have to do is run a smart campaign, you know, get your message out and be a candidate that uh, someone uh, doesn't see any big negatives uh, toward. And you're in a pretty good position to get elected or reelected. And as we've seen with President Trump, even really big negatives are forgiven in the Republican electorate. So, you know, to, to lose the numbers that you would need to lose to make a Democrat competitive at statewide office right now, imagine something that I, I don't even know what that is right now. Uh, it's it's uh, so as a lot of Democrats are really excited about Kendra Horn in the fifth district. And I think that we can begin as Democrats to start looking at the first district uh, and, and possibly even the fourth whenever we start to think about Norman and, and Comanche County and Lawton and some of those areas. Um, but this is That's this a is a whole lot this, more rural. Well, what we start thinking about is redistricting. And that will, I think, as we look down the road on these congressional districts, may be the biggest indicator of what happens, uh, you know, for the future, for the next decade, on how those lines are redrawn. At one point, there was conversation that we might even be in the mix to pick up an extra congressional seat. Uh, uh, so I think I think that with the population shifts and certainly the uh, need to realign because of the the uh, diminishing numbers in the in the rural areas, it's going to be fascinating to see because it can't all be congregated in, in one congressional district. It's going to have to uh, it's going to have to be a real mix, not only on the congressional redistricting, but we can also talk down the road about how that'll affect legislative redistricting as well. And like we said, we we, were, we weren't talking 2020 yet, but let's I mean thinking maybe even 2022, 2024. When we look at the the landscape in Oklahoma, whether we gain a congressional district or not, if things stay the way they are. Oklahomans right now are looking at Republican supermajorities in the House and in the Senate 
very likely a, a Republican governor uh, drawing and signing off on the new redistricting maps for the state legislature and for Congress. And the courts, by and large, have given states the, the blank check to do whatever the heck they want there. And so even as we begin to see uh, urban areas align to Democrats, and even as we see the populations continue to grow in urban areas, which should give Democrats, maybe not majorities, but at least greater representation in Congress and in the state legislature, Republicans will have a, a built-in advantage to draw those maps in a way uh, that could negate some of that advantage that Democrats are getting out of urban areas. And talking about the legislature, uh, several legislative seats flipped from Republican to Democrat and from Democrat to Republican. But once the dust settled, House Republicans gained four seats to extend their majority from 72 to 76, and Democrats have dropped from 27 to 25. Ryan, the Republican Party now no longer needs Democratic votes to pass anything. Where, where does the party go from here? Well, allegedly they don't. I mean, what we see with one-party uh, governance, and we saw this under of, under Governor Fallon and, and uh, under the last state legislature, um, ultimately you're going to have some intra-party far, uh, fighting at some point that is going to um, uh, require cooperation across the aisle, most likely. I mean, so there, there's going to be a need for that. But we, we uh, going back to this theme of Republicans in rural areas and Democrats in urban areas, you know, the seats, the rural seats that were lost uh, by the Democrats were seats that, you know, probably uh, in most states uh, were realigned and lost uh, a couple of cycles ago. And so, you know, now this is where we're at right now, where, you know, Chuck, Chuck Hoskins senior seat in Vanita uh, went, Brian Renegar down in McAllister, his seat uh, flipped as well. Minority leader uh, Steve Copeland. Minority leader Steve Copeland, the leader of the Democratic Party in the House, uh, lost one of one of the the most miserable defeats in maybe state political history, and again, I don't think it was by any fault of Leader Copeland at all. I I think it had to do with the fact that you know here's somebody who was running in a seat that was presumptively a Republican seat. Now in the in the metropolitan areas, again going back to that theme, Julia Kurt in uh, in uh, Oklahoma City took over David Holt's seat. Chelsea uh, Branham. Chelsea Branham uh, took over a seat. Uh, we see uh, uh, Cindy Munson getting reelected, um, Carrie Hicks taking over a seat in Nichols Hills. Uh, so, I mean, the the realignment, what we're seeing is happening right now. And those those rural seats, this is where I think that the Democratic Party and the Democratic Caucus, uh, both in the Senate and the House, they really need to recognize that realignment and they need to begin to elevate leadership within the urban ranks. Neva. Well, I think when you talk about those, uh, particularly those two Senate seats in Oklahoma County, Senate District uh, 30 and 40, uh, you also are looking at races where you had a Democrat in both instances that ran very aggressive campaigns, long campaigns, well-funded campaigns uh, uh, on the doorstep and very competitive. Yeah, I mean, they, they, like they were now. doing what you do to get elected uh, with a very strong ground game. And, uh, and, I, and I think that is the difference. I mean, it, just to presume that uh, Oklahoma County has this blue wave and, and, it, and automatically Democrats are becoming more and more in a position to have an advantage, they don't have an advantage if they still don't work hard, can raise the money and be competitive on their message. And I think that's where we saw the give and take across the board, even even in Oklahoma County, where you had Republicans being reelected right in the midst of some of these uh, uh, seats shifting on the Senate side, House seats still being 
uh, st- still holding on. So uh, I think uh, at the end of the day, I mean, it's going to it's going to be this give and take, and I think it sets up for both parties to do a better and better job of focusing on their own candidate recruitment, which I think uh, you would have to uh, say in the instance of the Democrats, particularly in Oklahoma County, they did a they did an exceptionally good job this cycle of finding candidates that mirrored the district and then uh, made sure that they were in a place to be competitive from start to finish. And, and I don't mean to say that it's ever easy or presumptive for a Democrat. I, mean, I think that you can say that about Republicans, and we have that case in Steve Copeland's situation where a guy won that really nobody even knows who he is and maybe didn't even didn't spend, spend any money. Any, didn't spend yeah, any money. Didn't even run a campaign. Yeah. But I, I, I do think that, you know, Julia Kurt, you know, she knocked doors. I mean, she knocked my door the day after the primary. She's going into a runoff. And, you know, it's you know, she's out there. Uh, the number of times that I see her out uh, campaigning in, in my neighborhood and in that district is, is amazing. So there's not such a thing... Uh, as a presumptive Democratic seat in Oklahoma. And, but, it, but it does, I think, mean that it's more likely that Democrats are going to be much more competitive there. And we're building a bench. Uh, you know, so Julia Kurt, Carrie Hicks, Carrie Blumert uh, in the county commissioner's office now, one of three county commissioners. You know, she's one-third of the management of the Oklahoma County Jail. How amazing is that? Uh, and she's going to be there with Kevin Calvey. Well, that'll be that'll be an interesting that'll be an uh, interesting dynamic. But I think now. that they have a lot of parallels on their criminal justice work. So that's interesting. Well, but I, there's this bench now being built among Democrats, and in particular among Democratic women. That's really exciting. And I think the question is: Do we do we have a climate that is changing enough where, particularly in the legislature and even at the county courthouse level, where we can have these new faces. I mean, let's let's face it, 100 new faces uh, potentially. Uh, I oh, mean, yeah. all of these uh, new folks at, at the Capitol. To have that uh, in place and to be able to go in with much more civility, hopefully, in a much better atmosphere, to be able to work together inside their own caucuses and then across party aisles, we can get some incredible things done for Oklahoma. And I think that is what I'm excited about is to see the potential of that maybe coming to pass. But how much are we concerned that with all these new faces, the actual people in charge now at the state capitol are the lobbyists? Oh, I think that that's uh, a huge concern. I think that it's been that way. It's been increasingly that way for a while. But, you know, I think, what is it, 77? I think the number is 77 of the 101 House members there will be, uh, uh, will have... Four years or less? Two years or less. Two years or less. 77 will have two years or less. I mean, that's... That's pretty incredible. And Neva, I, I hope you're right. I hope that you know what we see. I think you know Carrie Bloomer and, and Kevin Calvey in Oklahoma County could be a real example of that, especially if they can cooperate on some jail reform issues. Because what we're seeing at a national level, what my good friend Kendra Horn's walking into, Congresswoman Horn is walking into in Washington, is the most polarized Congress in the history of our country. And that, that's what we're looking Hopefully at at the we'll national level. we'll see something level. new at the state level when you've got all these new faces who w- might actually want to work together rather than fighting on opposite sides of the field. Finally, let's look at state questions. Only one passed Marcy's Law, which gives rights to the crime victims, but Oklahomans voted down measures to put eye exams in Walmarts, combining the governor and lieutenant governor on the same ticket, putting gross production taxes in a separate fund, and allowing schools to use building funds for operational expenses. Neva, were you surprised by these this, this results? I was, and, and I think the thing that is most surprising is that the voters really knew what they were voting on. Yeah, you did. can tell that by the margins. I mean, that there's no 
there's no just sweep that it, they were uh, all with, 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 with the Marcy's Law exception. Uh, pe- people were looking at those, and some had better support than others. Some had uh, more concerted uh, efforts to either oppose or uh, support than others. And, and so I think it goes against our grain in terms of the statistics that we've talked about in the past in, with state questions where uh, overwhelmingly in the past the state questions, particularly in even numbered years, have uh, have been overwhelmingly passed in Oklahoma. So uh, I think it says something, a couple of things. It says that, uh, that with respect to putting a something on the ballot uh, for the voters statewide uh, to make a decision on, you you better not just presume that it's uh, either a slam dunk or uh, that this is the easiest way to get it done as opposed to the legislative uh, uh, the le- legislative process. And I think we're going to see that mm-hmm. this coming session when it was very clear on the, on the election night that the folks that were the uh, with the uh, pr- proponents on 793 basically were saying, look, we our our takeaway is that folks had a an issue with it being constitutional and wording on a, right. a particular section. We're going to go back to the legislature and basically say, hey, the people really want this, and uh, now you guys, uh, you men and women, uh, decide that uh, uh, this is what the people want, and you do it on the legislative side. That'll be a fascinating, uh, fascinating, I think, uh, uh, proposition to watch as it moves through. Ryan, it, it'll be a good day to be an optometrist lobbyist or a Walmart, Costco <laughs> yeah. and lobbyist. And they'll load up on both they're, sides. They're going to load up on both sides yeah. because they'll, they'll fight that out in the and legislature. They do the I, the yeah. optometrists have a huge lobby. Oh man, and they, they I, sure and, do. And Don't I, mess with optometrists. Much much more powerful uh, on the legislative always level have. than they this do. This is nothing new. I mean, they yeah. always have. If been you've been formidable. if you've been in the the halls of the legislature for very long, and, and most people don't don't realize this because they see like the big sure. the big issues, you know, abortion or whatever it is, you know, that's the. But in the halls of the state legislature, you know, I, I like to talk to folks about optometries or optometrist versus ophthalmologist and scope of practice and teeth floating. I mean, those are <laughs> oh, God, those are the, those are the two things that will draw bloodlines in yes. the legislature. Oh, yeah, well. But you know, the key to that is is that there is a process, and I applaud these professions uh, that uh, that are uh, very deliberate in what they do in terms of uh, having representation up there, having lobbying mm-hmm. efforts up there, bringing their own members up there to make sure that their message gets heard loud and clear. And I think that's part of that oh, process absolutely. that we need to see more and more of. Yeah, and you were talking about the the, the, the mix of, because, yeah, one was, was you, you can't tell by the votes that the voters knew what they were talking about. But this actually goes back to two years ago where we saw those kinds of results on mm-hmm. the uh, this different state questions. Some of them you go, well, that's an obviously going to pass and it didn't yeah. you know like the 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 state the hunting and farming and yeah uh, the, i don't know if it was that one but there were there were several seven 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 yeah, yeah. seven 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 you know mm-hmm. it's like finally i think that the voter is getting really smart now that might be because of the internet that's might be because i think i think the information uh, uh awareness level is up and certainly the information accessibility is up and those things are good yeah and i don't know this but you know, a working theory of mine and looking at these these ballot measures especially what i would call the low information ones um the you know the the savings uh, plan the the one that would allow Evalorum to be used yeah. in, in different ways at, in, at at school district levels because even even voters that try to learn about those those are really complicated issues uh, that you know take a lot of time to I study try and, reporting and, on and, them. and try to report on them uh, <laughs> in a way that gives people accurate yeah. information but what I, what I think that uh, what I've seen there is that in on those questions that would expand discretion uh, within government officials. I think that there's a reluctance of the voter 
to give more power to the government here, to give more uh, discretion to the government to operate in a way like that. I think that what that's saying is that, and maybe, and because of the margins here, uh, you know, it's probably Republicans and Democrats to some extent sure. saying, listen, this may be a good idea in theory, but I just, I have a real reservation about giving you the power and the authority to do this right now at this, at this yeah. point in time. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.